Our scripture reading for this morning celebrates a God whose mercy is more than our sin. And if there's ever a time we in America needed to be reminded of the Lord's incredible mercy this weekend, certainly is that time. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Acts chapter 20, verse 17. And this is a fitting New Testament counterpart to what we've been studying Sunday morning, Psalm 23, because in Acts 20, 17, we are uh, given through Dr. Luke and through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul's farewell speech and his farewell address to the elders of Ephesus as he hands them the baton of gospel shepherding. He will not see them again, and he calls on the elders of the church to carry on the shepherding that they have seen begun by the Apostle Paul, but really has been begun by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Uh, The Apostle Paul, as you remember, was previously to his conversion on the road to Damascus, a wicked man who was no shepherd. He was a hater, and he was a murderer, and he was a blasphemer. But Christ saved him and transformed him by a mighty power of his word and his spirit and transformed him into his shepherd. And as we read through this, I want you to pay careful and close attention because what you're seeing is Psalm 23 in the life of the early church. And we see an exhortation from the Apostle Paul for the elders in Ephesus to pick up that mantle by the power of the Spirit to extend that same lordship shepherding to this young early church in the city of Ephesus. And as we read through shepherds, elders, deacons, small group leaders, this is the standard to which the Lord holds us to for biblical leadership. And church family, as you hear this, you can see what the Lord desires for you. And it is also a framework from Scripture with which you are able to hold your elders and your pastor and your deacons accountable as far as the standard that we cannot meet in our own strength, but Christ himself is our shepherd. Acts 20, verse 17. Now from Miletus, he, and that's referring to the Apostle Paul, sent to Ephesus, and he called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time, from the first day that I set foot, in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. 
And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease, night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me. In all things... I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and he prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. This is the word of the Lord. Church family, let's come to the Lord in prayer, our good shepherd, before we come to the exposition of his word. Oh, Heavenly Father, you are our holy and good creator. And you have given us an amazing shepherd in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And you have given us your word and your spirit to build us up in the faith, to make the weak strong, to make the proud humble, to enable the faithful, Lord, to endure in the face of much and many afflictions and sorrows. Enabling us to keep our eyes fixed on the author and finisher of our faith, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, our Good Shepherd, who laid down his life for us. And even as we read these words in Acts chapter 20, Lord, we're mindful that in your way, as imperfect as the shepherds and elders and the leaders of the church in America are, Lord, still, nonetheless, this is the way you have shepherded every child of yours. You have not failed to bring before us the whole counsel of your word. You have faithfully pursued us. You have faithfully shown us the errors of our ways. You have drawn us close. And like the father who awaits his prodigal son to come home, you have waited for us with robes of righteousness rejoicing at the earliest sign of repentance to embrace us and cover our shame 
with your goodness and grace. Lord and Father, you have been nothing but a good father to us. And yet as we come before you, Lord, on this day, this 4th of July weekend, as this nation celebrates its independence from the rule of fallen men, we come to you as a nation and we come to you as a church, confessing before you, Lord, that all too often we have rejected your authority as our creator. We have rejected your word as the authoritative and inerrant rule over all things. We have all too frequently rejected your shepherding, O Lord. And instead, Father, we have pursued the pleasures and delights of this fallen world. Lord, Psalm 2 reminds us and says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And we must come to you, Lord, as a nation and one of the many nations to say, This word that you have spoken in Psalm 2 is true of us. We have, not, we have wanted not only independence from the rule of tyrannical and fallen men, we have wanted independence from you and your word. And sadly, Father, we must confess that the church in America is not that much different. We have rejected your word and we have rejected your anointed shepherd, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And we have fashioned for ourselves a word to be our own authority. And we have come with our words and declared that all men are created equal. And that you as a creator have given us inalienable rights. That among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And as a nation and as churches... We have not treated others equally. And we have made distinctions and have been partial based on our pride, our idolatry, and our greed. And we have used the color of skin and nationhood and race as an excuse. And Lord, we have sacrificed the freedom that you have given and instead we have embraced the pursuit of material happiness in this world. And we have all too often made the pursuit of material happiness and the pursuit of a freedom to pursue sin. Lord, we have made these our callings. And we have used our money and we have used our education and we have used our politics and we have used our ability to raise our children to pursue these very things. And we have offended you, O Lord, by taking the name Christian. When the only one we are following, Lord, is the selfish desires of our own fallen hearts. So, Lord, we come to you this day and we ask, Lord, for forgiveness for those who are truly your children, for our nation, 
from our leaders and our president, our senators, our congressmen, our state governors. We ask, Lord, for mercy and grace, and we pray that you'd bring this nation to repentance and grant us by faith the ability to see you for who you are, a good and holy God who loves perfectly, a father who waits for his prodigal children to come home, a father who awaits ready to celebrate and to slay the fatted calf. Lord, we come to you as a church, and we also ask, Lord, for forgiveness for these same things. And we come to you and confess, Lord, you have been patient with us. You have promised in your word that you would humble the nations. You have promised in your word that you would pour out your wrath. You have promised in your word that what a man sows, he will reap. And that you, O Lord, will not be mocked. And we're mindful, Lord, as difficult as these times have been. We have not received what we deserved as a nation or as a church. Lord, if you were to count iniquities, O Lord, who would stand? And so we confess, Lord, the fact that we're able to even gather in someone's backyard the fact that we're able to take another breath, the fact that we're able to wake up and enjoy the sunrise and the sunset, which are your creations and your gift to us. Lord, this is a mercy and a grace that we do not deserve. And we're mindful that from your word you've shown that the only reason you delay is because you are kind and patient and merciful and you're giving us an opportunity to abandon our sinfulness and our idolatry and our pride and our greed so that we may come to our senses and see that even the lowest servant in your household is filled with joy and delight in the good things of heaven, even more so, Lord, than the richest sinner in this world. You've given us this time to turn and come back to you and to embrace you as our loving Father, and as our Good Shepherd. So, Lord, this morning, we ask, O Lord, would you enable us as we come to your word, would you bring us to our senses? Would you enable us to see that this is not a season for fireworks and celebrations, but instead a humble gratitude for your patience and your love and your kindness to us, and an opportunity Lord, in repentance, to turn and come and be embraced by the Father who is good and holy and gracious and who has given his very own Son on the cross and slain him and shed his Son's blood for our sake so that we might be forgiven and so that we might be made whole and so that we might be sanctified and edified and built up, so the weak might become strong, so the proud might become humble, so that the idle might be rebuked, and so that the faithful would not grow weary of doing well, but might endure until our Good Shepherd comes again. Lord Jesus, what we need so desperately, this nation and this church, we need you. And we need nothing less than you. And we need nothing else than you. So, Lord Jesus, we look to you this morning. And thank you 
that in your mercy and grace you have chosen to be present with us. Feed us, Lord Jesus. Restore our souls. Wash us and clean us. Thank you for bringing us to a place where we can lay down beside still waters and where you yourself can restore our souls with your word. Lord Jesus, thank you for this. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning we have a unique pleasure. I have asked uh, for the month of July uh, a number of the friends of Lighthouse Bible Church who are pastors to come and provide shepherding for us. Some of these pastors you know. There are pastors who have prayed for this church, have invested in this church, and provided counsel for this church. And uh, due to travel limitations, uh, they're not able to be with us here in person, but they are providing pre-recorded video teaching specifically for our church. And the first to lead the charge in that series is our good friend, Dr. John Street, who is the head of the Biblical Counseling Department at the Master's University. He's also an elder and pastor at Grace Community Church. But you know even more so he is a brother and a friend of Lighthouse Bible Church San Jose. He has prayed for our church. He has provided counsel for our church for many, many years behind the scenes. And he has prayed for our church. He labored hard with Kevin Lee's help and Andy Lynn's help to get us this pre-recorded sermon, which was not easy. And I know this transition is going to be a little bit different. It's going to be a little awkward. You're going to see him preach to us from his home office, and it's going to seem a little less formal, um, and it's going to take a little time to adjust. But as you get into it, I think you'll see that the power of the Spirit and the power of the Word will feed your heart and souls. And Dr. Street is going to take us through Acts 20, and he's going to take us through a sermon called The Extraordinary Value of a Faithful Shepherd. And it's a wonderful complement to what we've been going through in Psalm 23. And as we walk through this, maybe one thing that's helpful to see is that John Street, before he became the head of the Biblical Counseling Department at the Master's University, he himself was a pastor and a church planter. He himself went through many of the things that we're going to hear about and that we have heard about in Acts 20. Dr. Street has shared with me the moment where his minister of music became a divisive man and decided to rebel against the testimony of Scripture on the sovereignty of God and chose to leave that church that Dr. Street helped plant and with him left a third of the church over an issue of doctrine, an issue that many people would say is secondary, and yet in God's word is fundamental. And so as we walk through <clears throat> Acts 20, this is not something that Dr. Street is just teaching us from his great academic learning. These are truths that Dr. Street has lived himself by the power of the Holy Spirit. And they're truths that he desires to share with us that we, like the elders in Ephesus, might take up that mantle. Might consider ourselves in the light of God's word. And that we might continue in the face of opposition, the faithful charge to proclaim the whole counsel of God. And to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that when Christ returns, we ourselves 
might hear that congratulations of well done, good and faithful servant, and that we might say that we are guilty of the blood of no men, not by our own strength, but by virtue of the gift of God's grace in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So in a few moments, our AV team will switch over and we'll have the opportunity to come together under the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. It is a pleasure for me to be again with you at Lighthouse Bible Church there in San Jose. Um, it's always a pleasure when I have an opportunity to visit with you. And this morning, obviously, we're coming by way of pre-recording for your service. Um, but it's always a joy. The only regret that I have is that I wish I was there with you personally but uh, we have a lot of personal friends there that are a part of your church. And, of course, your pastor and his wife and family are very, very dear to us as well. So it is a great pleasure to be with you. And we hope and pray that your church is faring well through this COVID-19 pandemic. I know this is a very difficult time for a lot of churches. and A lot of people have um, been touched by what is going on. <clears throat> And we also know that um, some people have experienced loss of loved ones and maybe even uh, people within their own congregation. And that's regretful. Uh, we hate to hear that, but um, we know that God is still in these things. And at some particular point, we hope and pray that uh, the culture and society at large and all around the world, that this will be eventually taken care of. I want to begin uh, our time together uh, with prayer. So would you take some time and bow your head and your heart with me in prayer? Gracious Father, as we begin today, we have a huge challenge ahead of us because we realize that we live in a society in a world today that is avidly anti-Christian. And there are growing elements around the world that are anti-Christian and anti Christ, anti-church. And as a result of that, Father, um, this makes uh, being a consistent and faithful believer in this world uh, a real challenge. But yet, Father, by your very perfect design, you have designed the Church of Jesus Christ as being the essential element by which Christians can grow up, be trained well, and go forth and live a life of ministry. And I pray, Father, that we'll have a new view and a new appreciation of that at the, at the end of this hour. So we commit our time to you, asking you to use the Word of God effectively in our hearts. Challenge us. Move us beyond the status quo. Help us to be vibrant. And just as the term lighthouse is depicted in Lighthouse Bible Church, may we be brilliant lighthouses in the midst of the storms of this world. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I've entitled our message that I want to share with you at this particular time, The Extraordinary Value of a Faithful Under-Shepherd. The Extraordinary Value of a Faithful Under-Shepherd. 
This is something that's been a burden on my heart for a long time. And where I have an opportunity to, in churches of late, I am speaking to this particular issue. I think one of the primary reasons is because it's become very clear to me that there are a lot of men who graduate from seminary, a lot of men who study the Bible a lot, but very few of them are really faithful under shepherds. And this is such a key thing, and New Testament is very clear about the importance of a good, faithful under-shepherd shepherding the Church of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not zeroing in on Lighthouse Bible Church at San Jose as a, pers- as a particular church that necessarily uh, must hear this particular message, but what I'm saying is, in the broader evangelical world, this is a message that needs to get out there. And your church is one way that that's going to happen, I believe. What is my purpose? I want to help you to appreciate the faithful under-shepherd you have. That's one of my purposes. Help you appreciate the faithful under-shepherd you have. Because these men and your pastor, they are God's crack troops. They are the ones whom God has sent in this world to, in a sense, parachute right into trouble centers. And they're the ones that bear a huge burden when it comes to shepherding the Church of Jesus Christ. Not necessarily because the flock is sometimes rebellious, which sometimes it really is, but because they are answerable directly to Jesus Christ. That is the thing that should strike fear into every under-shepherd, the fact that at some particular point we will have to give an account for what we do and how we shepherd the flock of Jesus Christ that is under our care. And in fact, the writer of the book of Hebrews talks about this when he talks about the fact that um, he says in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 7, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and consider the result of their conduct and imitate their faith. And then later on in verse 17, he says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. So I think if you're a parishioner, if you're a person that's a member of Lighthouse Bible Church, you have to ask yourself the question, am I a joy to my pastor or am I a grief to him? Because the writer of the book of Hebrews makes it very clear that there is a special disdain that Jesus Christ has for members of the body of Christ that are a grief to people. Now, let me stop here as a caveat and say, your pastor did not ask me to preach on this issue. He has not shared with me any particular problems that necessarily are going on in your particular church that necessitates this admonition. I'm sharing this because of the general need that I see it see out there in the broader Church of Jesus Christ. So one of my purposes here is to help you appreciate the faithful under-shepherd you have. But there's a second reason, and I want you to really zero in on this, and that is I want to challenge you as a congregation to begin now to do everything you can to train and direct your best and brightest for future pastoral ministry. This needs to be done, and if it's not done deliberately as an intentional ministry of the church, then it's not going to happen. 
then there are going to be young men and women that are kind of drift through churches here and there from one point to another, and they'll never accept or never be challenged to accept the responsibility of faithful ministry in the Church of Jesus Christ. This is something that needs to happen, and it needs to happen in every Bible-believing church, and it needs to happen at Lighthouse Bible Church there in San Jose. Now, the text this morning that I want to use is a text that is taken from Acts chapter 20. So if you want to take your copy of the Word of God and go over to Acts chapter 20, we want to talk about this topic, the extraordinary value of a faithful under-shepherd. The Extraordinary Value of a Faithful Under-Shepherd, Acts chapter 20. And there are five critical observations, points of observations, I want you to see in this particular passage. We're interested especially in verses 18 down through verse 38. There's 20 verses there that we want to carefully examine and break apart, and we want to highlight five critical things. I would encourage you to write these five things down because I think they're going to be something that you're going to need to reflect upon, whether you're a man or woman in this church, something that you're going to need to think about in regards to the fact that if you really want to challenge Christian young men, your best and brightest that are part of your congregation for future pastoral ministry, because that is going to be part of the the hope of the future of the gospel on this planet, getting qualified men in pastoral leadership. This has got to be critical. So if you're going to do this, you need to write this down and reflect upon it. And then when this message is over, somebody, some of you are going to have to help your church develop a strategy to do this. This needs to be done. It's not enough for you to just merely grow numerically as a church or even grow in terms of your personal sanctification. You've got to think beyond yourself and begin to think about future generations. You've got to begin to think, what's the future generation going to be like if there are not faithful under-shepherds of God's flock? What's the future generation going to be like? Uh, When there are no real good churches, already we're seeing a a major toll on that in a lot of evangelical churches around the world today because these are the type of churches that do not have faithful under-shepherds. They don't carefully preach the Word of God. They're not interested truly in the gospel of the New Testament or the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are not faithful in terms of their own personal character, in terms of um, being holy and righteous and just in their character. And I I think part of this whole social justice phenomena that's going on in our culture today is somewhat justified in our churches because uh, really we have ill-equipped pastors who have done terrible jobs at helping people understand the importance of faithfully ministering the Word of God to the human race. And by the way, we're all one race. There is no such thing as distinct races. We are all one race. Whatever it may be, we have a responsibility to do that. Now, let's take a look at Acts chapter 20. And we'll pick up in verse 18. And follow along as I read. It says, And when they came to him, 
He said to them, you yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials, which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, bound by the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that all of you, among whom I went about preaching the kingdom, will no longer see my face. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I do not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Be on God for yourselves, and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, the shepherd, the, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on alert. Remember that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all who are sanctified. I have coveted no, man, no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. And everything I showed you, that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus. And he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them. And they began to weep aloud and embraced Paul and repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially over the word which he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they were accompanying him to the ship. Now, the first thing I want you to take a look at in this particular passage comes from verses 18 through 24. In verses 18 through 24, the Apostle Paul is primarily addressing the elders that he had appointed there at the church at Ephesus. You understand that the church of Ephesus was the key church of all of Asia Minor. It was, in a sense, the launching pad for all the seven churches of Asia Minor, as described in the, in the early chapters of the book of Revelation. And the church of Ephesus was the key church. It was the launching pad. And the elders that were there were, in a sense, exemplary. They were the men who were supposed to pick up and carry on the ministry of the church after the Apostle Paul left them for the final time. And it was a sad, very, very griefsome farewell because he knew that he was not going to be able to return to them. He knew that wherever the Holy Spirit was taking him, eventually it would lead to his death. 
but nevertheless, he was willing to go. He had, in a sense, finished his course there at Ephesus and was willing to do everything he could in order to leave behind a strong church. And so he admonishes the elders of the church to pick up where he had left off, to be good under-shepherds of the flock of Jesus Christ. Some of them would eventually do this full-time, others would do a part-time, but nevertheless, it was their responsibility to do that. Now, the first thing I want you to realize, and if you're writing notes down, you need to write this down. The first thing that you need to see in verses 18 through 24 is that a good shepherd prioritizes the gospel as more dear than life itself. You've got to see this. And this is what is truly lacking in a lot of men coming out of seminary today. A good shepherd prioritizes the gospel as more dear than life itself. The Apostle Paul understood this, and he did not count his life as more dear than the gospel. You see that in verse 24, right? He says, I did not consider my life of anything, of any account, as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Well, that's key. Later on in chapter 21 and verse 13, if you turn over there just for a moment, it says, uh, then Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart for I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we fell silent remarking, the will of the Lord be done. You can see the heart of the Apostle Paul. And basically what he is saying to the Ephesian elders is, I want you to be what I have been among you. I want you to be this kind of a person. I want you to prioritize the gospel of Jesus Christ as more dear than life itself. That's critical. And you can see this in verse 20. There was two dimensions to the Apostle Paul's ministry. In Acts 20 and verse 20, he says, How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything was that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house. There you see the two dimensions of Paul's ministry. There was the public preaching of the word of God, and there was the private preaching of the word of God. Those two things. Public preaching of the word of God, private preaching of the word of God. The public preaching of the word of God was to large crowds, to the gathered group of Christians there at Ephesus. From house to house is a reference to the personal discipleship and counseling that the Apostle Paul was constantly involved in. In fact, we'll see this later on in verse 31. When you see in verse 31, he says, Be on alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish. And by the way, that word admonish there is the word nuthetao, which means to warn or to admonish. Um, sometimes it's translated confront or counsel, each one with tears. Now you notice he says each one. That's the private ministry of the word of God. 
There are a lot of churches that exalt the public preaching of the Word of God to the exclusion of the private ministry of the Word of God, where the Apostle Paul had a 50-50 dimension on this. The public ministry of the Word of God, the public preaching of the Word of God was vital to the life of the church, but so was the private ministry of the Word of God in terms of discipleship and counseling. That is critical, and that was critical for the elders of the Church of Jesus Christ to understand that there's this twofold ministry that was vital to this. Richard Baxter, the great Puritan, has said this, quoting him, I know that preaching the gospel publicly is the best means in terms of efficient use of time and energy because we speak to so many at once. But it is usually far more effective to speak it privately to a particular person. So even the Puritans understood. Richard Baxter understood the importance of the private ministry of the Word of God as well. This is to not, I'm not demeaning the pulpit ministry of the Word of God. That's vital. It's critical for every ministry and every pastor. But that's only half of the story. There's a sense in which the Church of Jesus Christ needs to get back to an Acts 2020 vision of the ministry. That's really critical. A more balanced view of the ministry in terms of the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul was willing to not only bring the gospel to bear on large groups and large crowds, but he was also willing to go into the homes of people and personally work with them and their individual problems and bring the gospel to bear on those particular problems and show them how the gospel is critical to everything that they're going to do. And in resolving their personal problems and the turmoils of the soul that they experienced. That's really critical. So a good shepherd prioritizes the gospel as more dear than life itself. I want you to think about that just for a moment. Because the idea of the fact that we should give our life for the gospel is something that is so remote to this generation because of the cult of self-esteem. Uh, Alfred Adler, Adlerian, self-esteem advocates have done horrible damage to the Church of Jesus Christ. Christian psychologists have imported this wholesale into the Church of Jesus Christ. Everybody's concerned about looking out for themselves. Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs starts with looking out for yourself in terms of your own physical needs, and then you go up the priority list until you're fully self-actualized. All of that has to do with very self-centered view of life, where the gospel of Jesus Christ is just the opposite. And Paul highlights that in verse 24. He highlights that in chapter 21 and verse 13, how his life, his personal life, was not as dear to him as the gospel was. You have to ask yourself that question. Is that true in your life? Is the gospel more important than your life? Are you ready to die for the gospel? Or we could say for the sake of this particular message, are you willing to do everything you can in your church to raise up valiant soldiers for Jesus Christ in the future 
that will be qualified in terms of personal character and in terms of training and in terms of perseverance, the best and the brightest for future ministry. Otherwise, the future generations are lost. We've got to see this. This is so critical. I remember listening to an interview several years ago of uh, a young reporter interviewing the CEO of McDonald's Corporation International. And the young reporter actually asked a tremendously great question. The question was, how did you build a international company, multi-billion dollar company on teenage help? That's a great question, isn't it? How do you build an international billion-dollar company on teenage help? And the CEO had a masterful answer to that. He said, you know what? We don't teach teenagers to make hamburgers. We teach teenagers to teach teenagers to make hamburgers. I thought to myself, now that is an example of what the Church of Jesus Christ should be doing. We don't just train up Christians. We train up Christians to be able to train Christians to reproduce Christians. That's what we should be doing. And when we're talking about that, we're talking about training up Christians to be chief under-shepherds of God's flock. A good shepherd prioritizes the gospel that's more dear than life itself. We have very few men that are willing to do that today, even though they may even be coming out of great seminaries. Very few who are really doing that. They cater themselves. They get wrapped up in themselves. They're not interested in really preaching the gospel. Um, they just want to make sure that they have a successful ministry. You can see this a lot in seeker-friendly churches where, you know, it, it's all about uh, buildings, bucks, and bodies. That's what it's about. Buildings, bucks, and bodies. Uh, gathering as many people together in your church on a Sunday morning as possible. There's very little concern of training people up to be consistent, gospel-trained people to go back out into society and culture and be salt and light. This is the reason why a good shepherd prioritizes the gospel and is more dear than life itself. There's a second thing I want you to see as our time goes quickly. And this is in verses 25 through 27. 25 through 27. Let me read that again for you just for a moment. Paul says, And now, behold, I know that all of you, among you, whom I went about preaching the kingdom, will no longer see my face. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. So number one, not only does a good shepherd prioritize the gospel as more dear than life itself, but secondly, a good shepherd preaches the gospel without compromising its offense. A good shepherd preaches the gospel without compromising its offense. And the offense of the gospel is going to be there. Our culture hates the gospel. If you were to go to any major university and stand on that particular canvas and graciously preach the gospel, you would probably get hurt. Um, or 
somebody would kill you. Uh, there's so much hatred. Now, all of this has a satanic dimension behind it. There's no doubt about that. And we understand that something the world would never acknowledge in a million years. They don't even believe in the existence of Satan. But nevertheless, what's going on in terms of that kind of hatred towards the gospel of Jesus Christ comes from Satan and demonic forces. It's interesting. John Calvin makes this statement. Those whom the Lord has destined for this great office, he previously provides with the armor, which is the requisite for the discharge of it, that they may not come empty and unprepared. So it is, I believe, the responsibility of the Church of Jesus Christ, it's the responsibility of Lighthouse Bible Church of San Jose to train up men deliberately and intentionally to prepare them to be under shepherds of the next generation of Jesus Christ, but it's not just going to be your efforts. It's going to be the Lord, too, working in the heart of those young men. That's what needs to happen. And they've got to be willing to preach the gospel without compromise. Go over to chapter 26. We're interested in verse 22 of Acts. Acts 26, verse 22 Here, um, Luke records, So having obtained help from God, I stand to this day testifying both to small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place, that the Christ was to suffer, and that by means of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Now you can see how important this is this is exactly what we mean when we say a good shepherd preaches the gospel without compromising its offense paul the apostle paul there is doing this in chapter 26 there before festus um in caesarea so or in jerusalem i should say he had traveled from Caesarea to Jerusalem. And it was quite bold, the fact that he was willing to do that. But he was willing to do it in an uncompromising way. And those are exactly the type of people that we're looking for. Praise God, I know you have a pastor that's willing to do that kind of thing. There aren't many pastors who are that's willing to preach the gospel well without compromising its offense. Because if it is truly the gospel, then it will have a sting to it. We don't take the sting out of the gospel. And on the one hand, on the other hand, we don't make the gospel so offensive to people that they don't want to hear anything about it. But nevertheless, the element there is going to be an element in the gospel that is a sting. And when these early unbelievers heard the Apostle Paul talking about it, it stirred them. They were amazed at his boldness and his willingness to, in a sense, put his own life on the line in order to deliver the gospel to them. 
So number one, a good shepherd prioritizes the gospel. It is more dear than life itself. Number two, a good shepherd then preaches the gospel without compromising its offense, even at personal risk. There's a third thing that's key. Let's go back to Acts chapter 20. We'll pick up in verse 28. We're interested in verses 28 through 30. He says, be on guard for yourselves or all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. So number one, a good shepherd prioritizes the gospel that is more dear than life itself. Number two, a good shepherd preaches the gospel without compromising its offense. Number three, a good shepherd protects the gospel as a treasure beyond value. As a treasure beyond value. What really is important to you? Is it your retirement funds? Is it your home? Is it your car? Well, in this particular case, the under-shepherd of God flock is unusual because that which is most precious to him, that which he protects with zeal, it is a treasure that is beyond value, is the gospel. I think that's important for you to understand because the gospel of Jesus Christ is critical to everything. Martin Luther once made this statement. Listen to his words carefully. He said, let ministers daily pursue their studies with diligence, constantly busy themselves with them. Moreover, let them with care and diligence beware of the infectious poison of this imagined security and conceited overestimation. Rather, let them steadily keep on reading, teaching, studying, pondering and meditating. My concern should be that others receive from me what God has taught me in Scripture and that I strive to present this in the most attractive form to teach the ignorant, to admonish and encourage those who have knowledge to confront troubled conscience or comfort, I should say, troubled consciences, to awaken and strengthen, strengthen negligent and sleepy hearts as Paul did, and as he commanded his pupils, Timothy and Titus, to do, this should be my concern. How others get the truth from me. Study is my work, the work of God that God wants me to do. And if it pleases him, he will bless it. So what we're saying here is that a person who protects the gospel then is going to study it, going to study the word faithfully and treat it like it is a treasure beyond value. What is the most valuable thing in your life? Is it your husband? Is it your wife? Is it your children? Where does the gospel fall in that value system? <clears throat> For the faithful under-shepherd, the gospel falls right at the top of that list. He is the one who 
protects it. He protects it from those who want to dilute it, those who want to make it easy, those who dislike it. Um, those who will want to destroy it, he'll want to protect it from that. Let me go back to Richard Baxter for a moment, that great Puritan writer. If you've never written the works of Richard Baxter or never read anything like that, it's a tome. He was prolific in his writing. And he says this, He says, to be a pastor, a man must set his heart on life to come and regard the matters of eternal life above all the affairs of this present life. Above the trifles of this world, he must appreciate in some measure the inestimable riches of glory. There is a sense in which a true faithful under-shepherd of God's flock has the capacity to be able to look beyond the glitter and glitz of this world and see as a far greater eternal value, eternal life, and the gospel is the key to that eternal life. He's got to be able to look beyond that. You've got to be able to look beyond it. We get caught up in all the affairs. We listen to all the news. Fear starts to grip our hearts. And yet the critical thing here is not our physical lives. The critical thing here is the eternal state of a man or woman's soul. That's why we have to raise up faithful under shepherds. That's why this has to be so intentional. This is why we have got to be zealots about raising up young men who are going to be this way in the next generation. So number one, a good shepherd prioritizes the gospel that is more dear than life itself. Number two, the good shepherd preaches the gospel without compromising its offense. Number three, a good shepherd protects the gospel as a treasure beyond value. That's what a good shepherd does. There's a fourth thing. Let's take a look at this in verses 31 and 32 of Acts 20. Verse 31 says... Therefore, be on alert, remembering the night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So a good shepherd prioritizes the gospel, he preaches the gospel, he protects the gospel, and he, a good shepherd, presumes the gospel is sufficient to fully edify the saints. There doesn't have to be any admixture of any kind of psychological insights or philosophical insights that are part of the world today or sociological insights that are part of the world today. The gospel presumes, or the good shepherd presumes, The gospel is sufficient to fully edify the saints. My concern is that there are a lot of Christians today in churches today who don't presume that. They think that they've got to add something else 
do it. They fear, fear that somehow the Bible is an antiquated piece of truth, but it only goes so far. There are even some Christians who go as far as to say that the scripture is sufficient to get us to heaven. But it was never intended to be sufficient to deal with the serious problems of the soul today. Serious problems with anxiety, with fear, with dread, with depression. The Bible's not sufficient to deal with those kind of things. So there's a sense in which God has left Christians down through church history ill-equipped to deal with serious problems of life, but it'll get you to heaven. That is a very truncated view of sufficiency. In fact, really, that's not a view of sufficiency. It's giving lip service to the idea of biblical sufficiency, but that's not sufficiency. Robert, Robert Muir, uh, Murray McChain, great pastor, back in the 1800s. There's a story of him writing to his friend, Dan Edwards. He wrote the, him a letter on the 2nd of October, 1840. And he said this to him. <clears throat> he says, and by the way, he wrote this letter after Dan Edwards' ordination as a missionary to the Jews. He says, I trust you will have a pleasant and profitable time in Germany. I know you will apply hard to German, but do not forget the culture of the inner man. I mean of the heart. How diligently the cavalry officer keeps his saber clean and sharp. Every stain he rubs off with the greatest care. Remember, you are God's sword, his instrument. I trust a chosen vessel unto him to bear his name in great measure according to the purity and perfection of the instrument will be the success. It is not great talents that God blesses so much as great likeness to Jesus. A holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of God. Oh my. We can say that about all of us. Even if you're not an under-shepherd, even if you're not an elder there at Lighthouse Bible Church, say that, that a holy Christian is an awful weapon in the hand of God. doesn't have anything to do much with talents. It has everything to do with what that person's likeness is to Jesus Christ. So if you're going to train up your best and brightest for future ministry to be God's crack troops that are willing to parachute in to future problems, situations, to plant churches, to help guide and direct churches according to the word of God, then you've got to raise up holy young men. You've got to do that. That's got to be your job. You as a church have got to decide how are we best going to do this? And you understand that a good shepherd presumes the gospel is sufficient to fully edify the saints, which starts in his own life. He has to pour 
the gospel and the truth of the word of God through his own life first before he then turns around and delivers it to the congregation. That's such a critical element. I remember counseling a man who had pastored a church for almost 15 years. It was a church of over 3,000 people. And this relatively younger pastor fell morally. He was actually apprehended in a police sting, hiring prostitutes. It was the saddest thing in the world. His wife was crushed. The congregation was caught by surprise and totally crushed. This was happening, and it had been going on for some time. And they asked me if I would be the one to counsel that man. And I was willing to accept that. And I remember in the midst of the counseling, he turning to me and he says, for the past 15 years, I've never really directly studied the Bible. Imagine that. 15 years of pastoral ministry of a church of 3,000 people. And here's a guy who never really directly studied the Bible. He said, what I do was, I take a passage of scripture, I would find prominent men who are on the radio, like like John MacArthur or Chuck Swindoll or or someone else, and I would listen to their sermons, and I would take those sermons on that particular passage and massage them together into my own little sermon, and then that's what I would preach. And for 15 years of that, exactly what he had done, which short-circuited everything that was supposed to be happening. Because if he was, he was going to be a faithful under-shepherd, which he was never, not from day one was he a faithful under-shepherd. Everybody thought he was. Then he was supposed to go to the Word of God and study it himself. That Word of God should have a molding quality on his own heart and life first, before he turned around and attempted to deliver that to the congregation. That never happened. He, in a sense, regurgitated other men's sermons with popular antidotes, popular stories, and everybody thought he was the greatest preacher in the world. He wasn't. He was just borrowing. We don't need men like that. We do not need men like that. Not for the Church of Jesus Christ, not for the true Church of Jesus Christ. We need men who believe that the word of God is sufficient in and of itself to be able to address all the issues in their own personal lives as well as in all the issues of the lives of their congregation. Robert Murray McChain had it right. He had it right when he makes the statement of the fact that you've got to pay attention to the culture of the inner man. And he meant the heart. Because he says, in great measure, according to the purity and perfection of the instrument, will be the success of the person. That's got to be key. Of course, this pastor that I counseled was not like that at all. 
not even close. So a good shepherd prioritizes the gospel. A good shepherd preaches the gospel. A good shepherd protects the gospel. A good shepherd presumes the gospel is sufficient to fully edify the saints. The last thing, number five. Verses 33 through 35, he says, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes, Paul says. You yourself know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me and everything I showed you, that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus. And he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So, if a good shepherd prioritizes the gospel, preaches the gospel, protects the gospel, presumes the gospel is sufficient to address all the issues of the saints' souls, then, number five, a good shepherd prizes the gospel by working hard to help the weak. A good shepherd prizes the gospel by working hard to help the weak. That has to be there. Helping the weak, that's going to be through counseling. People who are weak in faith. There are a lot of people today that are very weak in their faith. They'll say, I, I don't know whether I have enough strength anymore to do what needs to be done. I don't know. That's a great question. In fact, Recently, I was counseling a person, and this person made a very similar statement to me. In fact, they were struggling with pretty serious problems with anxiety. And in, in this particular, in the midst of the counseling, he said to me, he said, I feel weak and low, broken. Genuinely questioning reality. So there are a lot of people that are like that, especially in the midst of the time of this pandemic. And this is where the church and the beacon of the church and the light of the church shines its brightest. Verse 35 says, And everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. He himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. J. Sidlow Baxter said, No man who is full of himself can ever truly preach Christ who emptied himself. That's right, isn't it? No man who is full of himself can ever truly preach Christ who emptied himself. That's so critical. There was a poem that was published many, many years ago. And I put it in my file first time I read it and thought, someday I want to use that. So I'm going to share it with you. And it's entitled, A Parish Perished. It says, there is a pastor himself he cherished who loved his position and not his parish, 
So the more he preached, the less he reached. And this is why his parish perished. We're talking about men who are just the opposite of that. That he does not count himself as dear at all. He prizes the gospel and he works hard to help those who are weak. Pastors that are consumed with themselves are never going to help those who have need. That will never happen. But pastors who are consumed with Christ, who know that it's more blessed to give than to receive, will be consumed with the gospel, will prize the gospel, will make the gospel uppermost in their thinking. Martin Lloyd-Jones has said, a man should only enter the Christian ministry if he cannot stay out of it. That's what makes a faithful under-shepherd. So, I entitled this message today, The Extraordinary Value of Faithful Under-Shepherd. And I said to you, my purpose was twofold. Number one, to help you appreciate the faithful under-shepherd you have. But secondly, to challenge you as a congregation to begin now to do everything you can to train and direct your best and brightest for future pastoral ministry. You know why? Because in Acts chapter 20, that's exactly what the Apostle Paul does with the Ephesians. He trains up elders as the best and the brightest to take his place when he is gone. And he does such a good job at it that when he finally leaves them, never to return, it is a tearful farewell. It is a griefsome goodbye because he had poured out his heart. He had poured out his life to them. Look at verse 36. When he had said these things, he knelt down and he prayed with them all. And they began to weep aloud and embrace Paul and repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially over the word which he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they were accompanying him to the ship. Paul made a lasting impact upon those young elders there at Ephesus. They remembered him, I'm sure, to their dying day. And then they carried forth the gospel of Jesus Christ to the next generation. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about looking for the best and the brightest. The best and the brightest of Lighthouse Bible Church of San Jose needs to be raised up for the next generation. Young man, if that's you, you need to begin to think about that right now. And then do everything you can to go to the elders of your church, your senior pastor, and take advantage of their wisdom. Ask them to oversee your development. Ask them of what you need to do in the future to take steps to be a future faithful under-shepherd. Let's bow for prayer. Gracious Father, we are grateful for the Word of God, the challenge that it has to us in our generation. I pray that we will not forget about the future generations 
just in dealing with our own personal problems in this generation. Help us to raise up true leaders. Help us to train up people who will train up future leaders for the sake of Jesus Christ. And then, Father, when you call us to heaven, we will leave behind a legacy, much the same way that the Apostle Paul left a legacy behind there in the Ephesian church. This we pray in the precious name of our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.